Please turn with me now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Luke, chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went to a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to him? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. And he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we pray that you indeed would open our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your word. Lord, we recognize that this is a spiritual transaction. It is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us rightly to receive it, rightly to discern it, and to profit from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to Luke chapter 20. As I mentioned, we are in what is sometimes called Holy Week, the week on which Jesus will die. It is, as I say, probably Tuesday. It is after the triumphal entry and after the cleansing of the temple. And we know that the religious leaders have, in the words of Luke 19.47, been seeking to destroy him. But they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And last week we saw how they sought to undermine the authority which he had with the common people by bringing, calling him into question uh, asking what sort of authority he had, what was the, who gave him this authority to come and to drive out the money changers and those who sold animals and so forth. They ask in this impertinent sort of way, and as we know, they did not get an answer from him. Because in verse 8, Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But that does not mean that he had nothing to say whatsoever. Rather, the passage moves very directly on to verse 9, which is our, the beginning of our text this morning, verses 9 to 19. 
He began to tell the people this parable, because that was going to be his answer. No, they asked him a question. He didn't give them an answer because it was an impertinent one. But rather he spoke to the people and gave a different sort of answer in the form of this parable. And as we say in America, if the shoe fits, wear it. And this particular parable, this particular shoe was very bespoke and it was custom fitted for these particular wicked leaders of the people. And so this is the parable of the wicked tenants. And the story ends in a very manner similar to the previous chapter in verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. The very, very same way. Well, we need to keep that very clear, simple context in mind. Jesus had spoken this parable against them. They knew it. How so? He looked at them in verse 17. What then is that written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He was that stone, you see. He was that rock which the Old Testament spoke of. He was the rock which was struck in, in the Exodus to bring forth water. He was the rock upon which all those who were in danger could come and to hide in. They were the builders. They were the ones that God had entrusted the people as, the, as leaders of the people, and they had rejected their own rock, who is Christ. Well, we need to consider Christ this morning. We need to consider him indeed as the great chief cornerstone. That is our title this morning, Christ the Chief Cornerstone. Because we know as with all things, there are two ways you can approach him. You can approach him as one to reject, and soon enough you yourself will be rejected and rather crushed into powder when he returns in his glory. Or on the other hand, you can receive him as indeed your Savior, your Master. No, you cannot remain standing upright in your pride before him. But if you come in humility before him, you will be saved. This is Christ, the chief cornerstone, with these three points. First, the good landowner. Second, the thieving, murderous tenants. And third, the rock who grinds to powder. So first, the good landowner in verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. So let us begin by going through the list of characters. First of all, who is the man? The man who owns this vineyard. It is God the Father. And let me say that in every indication that we have in this parable, he is good. He is reasonable. He is patient. He is patient even to a fault. As we consider his long suffering and patience and we wonder how it is that he can carry on being so patient with these wicked people. And no one could reasonably complain against him and the good terms and reasonable terms which he gives. He only seeks. He does not demand blood from a stone. Rather, he demands, he requires, he asks for fruit reasonably given in seasonable times from these people that have leased the vineyard on precisely these kinds of terms. Now, what is the vineyard? It's the nation of Israel. As 
we know. We even have coins extant from, from ancient times. And what kind of picture are they going to put up? The pagans might have put their false gods on it. The Romans might have put the image of Caesar, but what about the people of God? What are they going to put on their coins? Well, the answer is a vine, a grapevine. That was a great symbol of Israel used in the Old Testament and in the New. It was such a famous national symbol that there is no confusion. There is no doubt who he's talking about. The, the Pharisees at the end do not have to say, now, are you talking about Israel and about us? No, they're under no confusion. They know exactly what uh, is being spoken of. It's the nation of Israel. And the vine dressers, well, those are the leaders who had charge of the nation. That's the idea, isn't it? That the church is, is God's, and he puts it under the stewardship of under-shepherds, under the stewardship of elders and the rulers of the people in this case, and he expects them to take care of that which is precious to him, his vine which is Israel. And we know, by the way, that God in his goodness did not stack the deck against this vine. He, he rather put, gave every good thing, as you know in the Isaiah, a passage that I've read many times in the past. He explains all the good things that he did. He set a, a tower for its protection. He put a, a hedge all around it. He dug it. He has fertilized it. It is well watered and is well taken for, uh, taken care of. And at the end, he has to ask the question, what more could I have done for this vine? What more could I have possibly done to rather stack the deck in its favor, to do everything that could be done in order that would be fruitful? And yet, what do I get from it? Nothing. Came looking for grapes, and all he found were sour grapes. There's no fruit from it. Well, let me say again, what are the expectations of this good landowner? They're very reasonable. They're pretty basic, because in verse 10, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He doesn't come at planting time. He doesn't come at the time in which it is green and growing, but there is no fruit yet to be found in which the those who had charge of what were reasonably said, Lord, please give us some time. It's not, it's not time yet even to pick the grapes. No. It's vintage time. It is well time that there should be fruit on this vineyard. That's the thing about vines. There is a, a time every year for them to bear fruit. It is only reasonable that the owner of the vineyard would come seeking fruit at such a time. And likewise, for the nation of Israel, there is a time for there to be fruit. There was a time in which it was planted, a time in its infancy, a time where it is being grown and built up in various ways. And then there is a time in the providence and the settled uh, dealings of God that there should be fruit. This is the time that the Lord God would send his son, you see, into this world. He did not send it at the beginning. He didn't send it five days into the Exodus. He didn't send it two months into the time in which they were in the promised land. He didn't send the Lord Jesus even in the time of David. Rather, he sent at the set times which the Lord had determined where there would be fruit, where there would be have been many, many cycles of, of humbling, many cycles of preparation by the prophets, many cycles of preparation under many different hands, and finally even by the last and previous prophet of the, of the Old 
dispensation, which was John the Baptist, to prepare a way through his baptism of repentance. He had done everything possible that when he came, there would be fruit. And so in Luke 13, 6, which we have previously looked at, he spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree. That's another symbol for Israel. A fig tree, and he planted it in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He'd come in the time of fruit, but there was no fruit to show. And we're about to see why, because you see, the question that, that might, we might say, is there something wrong with the seed? No, it's perfect. Is there something wrong with the plan? No, it's perfect. Is there something wrong with the setup of this vineyard? And the answer is no, because an almighty and all-wise and all-knowing God had put everything in place for it, that under any reasonable situation, there should be much good fruit from the nation of Israel. But there's a reason why there's no fruit. Because our second point is the thieving, murderous tenants. The thieving, murderous tenants are the reason why there is no fruit to be handed over to the living God. The vine dressers, right? So he sent someone to go get the fruit. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. In verse 11, and again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And in verse 12, and again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Now, this is not reasonable. This is wickedness, and this is theft. These tenants were there. This was not their vineyard. They had not bought it. They had leased it. And the Lord had put it into their hands in order that he might receive fruit from it at the appointed season. And they are unwilling to give what is due to the living God. That's the reason why there's no fruit. Because of the, the thievery and the wickedness of these tenants. Now, it's not enough for them merely to send the servants of the Lord empty-handed. Now, who is he speaking of when he is sending continually these servants looking for fruit? Well, it's, it's the prophets that he has sent previously. And what, do we, what does the, the nation, the leaders of the nation, do to the prophets of God in the Old Testament? Well, all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 11 to find out the long list of what happened to them. Some of them were stoned. Some were killed in other manners. Some, one was sawn in two. They were killed in every manner known because of these murderous tenants would not have these people to receive fruit in the name of the Lord. Well, in verse 13, after all this, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Now, this is the crux of the parable. Here, here is the central point of it. Thus far, it has been merely establishing the background to the situation, the background of a good tenant, a good and reasonable man who is, or a good uh, landowner who has given him this. And the, the track record of the leaders of Israel, in which they've never yet handed over the fruit. They've never yet submitted to the ones that he sent in his name, all the prophets thus far, and they've killed every one of them. 
And now he says, I will send my beloved son. This is exactly the witness which they were so unwilling to receive. Remember, they came and who's tell me in whose name and authority you come and you do these things. You act as if this is your place. You act as if this temple is yours to cast people out and to cleanse and to establish according to you. Where did you get this authority? He says, it's an excellent question. And he asked them, indeed, what about John, the, God, the, the witness of John? Tell me about that one. Was, was this from heaven or from earth, from men? Where did, where did that message come from? He said, well, we can't say from heaven because then he will say, why didn't you believe him? Because John said, this is whom? This is the Son of God. Son of God. And he's only carrying on that conversation now and saying, I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Now, we might say that this landowner is naive. We might say, landowner, you have already sent three of your servants. And every time, he's not gotten the fruit. And instead, he's been evil dealt with. He's been beaten. He's been treated shamefully. He's been wounded and cast out every time. What do you think is going to happen to your son? Why would you send your son to such unworthy tenants? You should have already sent your army and wiped them out for the way that they have been treated. Do you know what? That's right. That's just. He would have been perfectly just already to have wiped them off from the face of the earth, effaced their memory, and already given that vineyard into someone better than they. But no, this, you see, let's, let's not forget that the owner of the vineyard is good. And he is kind, and he is patient, and he is long-suffering. And that is part of the story that we need to hear. Yes, the end of it is that he's going to crush these people into powder. And let's not forget that this is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. But what actually stands out with greater prominence even than that is the patience and the long-suffering of this landowner who would yet even send his beloved son after he knows good and well what's going to happen to him. And brothers and sisters, he knew what would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was no accident. It was no mistake. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world... The Father and the Son and the Spirit knew precisely what was going to happen to him. That he would be rejected. He would be shamefully treated. He would be beaten. And finally, he would, as what is going to happen to this son, be murdered. But when the vine dressers saw him in verse 14, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, my friends, sadly, this is precisely what they were planning. This is precisely their mindset. This was their rationale, that in order for them to maintain possession of this vineyard, they're going to have to kill the heir. And their idea was if they succeeded in doing that, then it would remain theirs forever. You know, in another place in, in the Gospels, we have this reasoning recorded for us. 
And that the idea was that the Romans, if they didn't, if they left Jesus alone as he was, the Romans would come and take away their place. <coughs> or that indeed Jesus himself would succeed in becoming king. Either of these things were unacceptable to them. And in order to preserve their power, to preserve their privilege and, and situation, they would have to kill, in their own minds, the son of the owner. They were going to have to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have heard it more than once that this was what they were planning. And we hear it once again that they're plotting to kill him. And he is speaking to these people right now as he says this parable to them. How they must have been cut to the heart as he read their minds and explained their rationale to them as they at this moment were plotting murder against him. Well, that's the thieving, murderous tenants. And the greatest possible contrast to the good and reasonable and patient landowner. The third, even at, at a higher point and even at a more central point of this parable, we consider the rock himself. Because Christ is the rock. That is what we are considering. And that is our third point, the rock. Well, in verse 15, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to him? Good question. What do you think, people, as I'm giving this parable? Here's, here's the, the leaders that have just asked him this impertinent question here. And he turns and says, people, let me tell you a little story about an owner of a vineyard and about some wicked, thieving, murderous tenants. Now, tell me, friends. After the first and the second and the third servant is treated this way. And then lastly, they murder his son. What do you think is going to happen to him? Verse 16. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's right. That's right. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Who's who's having that reaction? Well, it's because the leaders are following along, you see. They know what is being spoken of. They know it's, it's the nation of Israel. And they know the parable has been spoken against them. And they react as anyone would in such a situation. The fact that they are going then to have this leadership taken away from them. And they're going to be destroyed. And they react... Naturally, perhaps even without thinking, for once in their lives, they react without, without calculation, without machination, as a word of condemnation and judgment is spoken against them. They say, certainly not! Certainly not. They're perfectly clear what the vineyard is. This is the thing they feared most. It's the thing that they thought they were seeking to avoid in all their machinations against Jesus. All their wicked, sinful machinations yet had the idea of preserving the leadership of the nation in their hands. And this is the thing that was going to happen to them. More than likely, it was that, more than the fact that they'd be destroyed, that got them the most. That it was going to be taken from their hands. But in verse 17, and he looked at them and said, What then is that which is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, here it is. He is a stone. Uh, how many times, and as we're going through Exodus, we are soon enough going to come to Exodus 17:6, where we consider the rock and Horeb, 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And we find out that this was this rock is actually a type and picture of Christ himself. It, as the rock is being struck, water comes forward. Now, the, the rock itself is not destroyed, keep in mind. But rather, that which comes from the strike is water in order that the people might be saved, in order that they might have life-giving water given to them. And that, incidentally, is precisely what is about to happen to Christ. These thieving, murderous tenants are going to have Christ stricken by the hands of the Gentiles, and his side is going to be opened up. But what flows from his side, the water mingled with blood, is actually going to be the salvation of his people, all those who put their faith in Christ. And so it is even by their very own wicked and sinful act, which they will surely be judged for, were judged for. It is through this that a provision is made that we might be saved. Well, furthermore, all throughout, in various places of the Old Testament, we know that the Lord is described as the rock. I'll just mention Deuteronomy 32 and verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And also in Deuteronomy 32:18, the rock of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You have forgotten the rock who fathered you. And finally, that which has inspired many a hymn, Second Samuel 22:47, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. This is, this is Christ, and he is the rock of salvation. And I preach Christ to you this morning. It, it was a, a parable, yes, spoken against the wicked tenants, and we must learn from that. But Christ, the rock, is the gospel that is spoken to all people today. He is the rock by whom and the only way by whom you may be saved because that is then the message that Jesus goes on to explain in verse 18 he says look this is the chief cornerstone I'm the chief cornerstone you may have rejected me and in fact he is going to be actually cast out when he dies he does not die actually in the the capital itself but just outside Jerusalem you see because even though he came in the triumphal entry, even though he was received as the king, what happened? The, the tenants, those wicked, thieving, murderous tenants cast him out and beat him and murder him. And he is outside of the gate as he dies. But in verse 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And this is a verse, it's a little bit enigmatic, isn't it? But I want you to remember this verse. I, I think this is a key text, perhaps, of the entire chapter. If you could keep this one text in mind, you would have the secret of all things. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, the grinding him to powder, that's, that's no problem. We, we, we understand that now. Because Christ is going to return in his glory and he is going to judge these wicked, murdering, thieving tenants. And he's going to grind them to powder. 
Again, please, if your understanding of Christ does not allow for a picture of him grinding someone to powder, you need to change your idea of who Jesus Christ is. Because that is precisely what's going to happen on Judgment Day. But what about the other part of it? Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. What, what does that mean? Well, that's the gospel. There's another possibility besides being ground to powder. You may well be deserving of being ground to powder, but there's, there are two alternatives of which Christ is very clearly putting before you. Right? Instead of that, there is, there's something that happens first. It's sequential, isn't it? One thing that could happen now and one thing that could happen later. And the thing that could happen now is that whoever falls on that stone will be broken. You say, that's a terrible thing. I don't want that any more than being crushed to power. Well, it's speaking rather of your pride. Speaking of there being a rock of which you are fighting against, a rock of which you are resisting, but ultimately which you fall down before. Maybe you've stumbled before this, this rock, even despite yourself. And there in your humility, you submit to the rock who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what? You're saved. That's the thing. Christ didn't come in order to, without warning or without any opportunity to do anything else, to crush his enemies. He says, I did not come to destroy. I came to seek and to save the lost. And Christ, the rock, yes, you cannot continue on in your self-sufficiency. You can't continue on in your pride. You can't, you can't continue on in your desire to live apart from Christ, to live in a rebellion against him, and to try to save yourself. No, you've got to be humbled and fall down before him. Because at the end, every knee shall certainly bow. But now those who encounter Christ and fall down before him in humility, they are saved. And they don't need to be ground to powder them. Well, just to conclude this point, he is the rock that grinds to powder because in verse 19, and the chief priests and the scribes at very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? They are, they are completely convinced that he has spoken this parable against them. Now, let me say, at least they had that one advantage. They were 100% convinced that this parable was speaking to them. The sad thing is that they did not then repent and fall down before Christ in humility and begging of him forgiveness. As we turn to application, let me, let me at least urge you to know that the parable speaks to you. In whatever condition you are this morning, you have to know that this parable absolutely speaks to you. No one gets by this rock of Christ. Everyone will eventually fall before him. The question is under which and under what circumstances? Now, let me say my, my first application is this. The rock grinds slowly but exceedingly fine. We sometimes spoke of this with regard to the Presbyterian church government, that it is something that grinds slowly but exceedingly fine. Well, it is far more so than with, with regard to Christ himself, because he is patient. He is so patient. In fact, he is so patient that some people be begin to believe that he will never do the things that he has warned. 
Second Peter 3.9 says the Lord is not slack. Some people think he's slack. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, it is long-suffering, this, this rock. He is grinding very slowly. He is not doing nothing precipitously, nothing prematurely, everything rather in its time. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, I know that's mixing of a metaphor. It's mixing of a type between being crushed to powder and being liquefied. But the, the, the reality is the same, isn't it? That the judgment day is long in coming. The rock is grinding very, very slowly, but when it comes, it is exceeding fine. And there are none who escape. And my point of this is to say that you ought to humble yourself before the rock now. Right? Because if you thought to yourself, either that this, this rock is, is grinding uh, in a way that will never get around to me, or if you think that maybe this, this rock is, is grinding, but there are some who are going to be left out because he is, he is capricious. And maybe some he judges and others he forgets about and others he neglects and he is, he is scattershot in the way he goes about it. Then maybe you would be justified in delaying your repentance, delaying putting your faith in Christ and being saved. Maybe you would be justified. But the picture in your mind ought to be of Christ who is He's grinding very slowly and with great patience and long-suffering, but exceedingly, perfectly fine, of which there are no exceptions at all. Humble yourself. Fall before the rock now, lest he crush you to powder. You know, the difference is everything to do with faith. You say, well, what's the difference? Everyone's going to, to fall before him eventually. I'll just let it go. Well, the difference is, of course, by faith. As the word of the gospel is being proclaimed to you, you can receive it and, and believe it. The day of the Lord is, in fact, coming. And he has sent his messengers before him. He has sent messengers. Yes, they are ill-treated. Yes, sometimes they are, are persecuted. Sometimes they are killed and despitefully used and all the rest of it. And that carries on even in this very day. But those who receive the message have a warning then to prepare themselves and to turn. Turn everyone from his evil ways. Because the Lord is long-suffering in order that all might come to repentance. He is not desirous, he is not bloodthirsty seeking the destruction of the wicked. But rather proclaims this opportunity that people might fall now before the rock of Christ. The second application is to remind us, to remind God's people that the rock does not change. That's the picture of the rock. Rocks remain the same. Right Now we know that real rocks in this fallen world change a little bit over time by erosion, but even still you can look at pictures of now and compare them to hundreds of years ago, and you say, little has changed for that mountain. Little has changed for that rock. In uh, America, one of the, we don't have all that many wonderful old historical sites, but we have Plymouth Rock, and it's the same rock. It's been there for these centuries, and it will be for many centuries more. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ is not a fallen rock. He's not changed even a little bit by erosion over time. He is perfect and remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some people imagine Christ to be a chameleon. This is the false Christ that they have in their mind. Christ the chameleon is the one they love to imagine who changes with the times, who is on trend with the latest movement of the zeitgeist, whatever it's this way or that way. Now, let me say, God made the chameleon just as well as he made the rock. He made both of those things. But he never, never, never used it as a type of Christ or a type of any good thing. Because it is in the nature of a chameleon to change, to blend in particularly with his environment. Not just that he's changeable, but in particular that he blends in. It is his God-given nature to blend in perfectly within whatever environment he happens to be in. Now, I, I don't need to tell you that there are many, many, many in the church who say that this is the great, the great object of the church in our time, to blend in with the circumstances, to blend in with the winds of our culture as it goes this way and that. For the same reason the chameleon does, right? The chameleon is, is there. He's, he's just a, a smallish size reptile and he could easily be destroyed by those who, who see him. And therefore the best thing he can do is blend in lest he suffer, lest he die when people see him against the backdrop and they see a contrast, right? The chameleon is there to reduce our contrast to nothing so there's no distinctiveness. The rock doesn't care. Okay, the rock doesn't change, and it could be it could be winter, and there could be color. One color of vegetation is brown around him. It could be summer. It could be green. It does not change. It does not matter. It could be white. It could be the snow. It does not matter to the rock. The seasons come and go, and he remains the same because he can't be destroyed. See, let's not forget, we're not talking about Christ, the unchangeable small reptile who is easily going to be destroyed, who needs to blend in because otherwise he, he, it might endanger his existence. If we've come to Christ, we've come to an invincible, unconquerable, unchangeable rock. He can afford to stand out in a crowd. Because even these wicked Pharisees could not destroy him on that day. Until it was his day, no one could touch him. No one could lay a finger on him. Didn't need to blend in. He was in the providence of God and vulnerable until the moment his time came. Brothers and sisters, if we have come to this rock, if this is our rock and he says, be like me, and we need to be steadfast. In the words of, of 1 Corinthians 15, 57 to 58, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain with the Lord. That is what we are called to do. This rock does not change. And we, my friends, must be like him. Thirdly and finally, I would say we ought to be built upon this rock. This rock came precisely to be a cornerstone of something. Now, he was rejected by the, the builders, but that doesn't mean he's not the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone, and there's something is going to be built up from this perfect cornerstone. 
That's the words of First Peter 2.4. Coming to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You, chosen generation, the word of God says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness as marvelous light. Now, the idea is when we encounter, when we first encounter the rock, we are humbled to the ground. But thereafter, we become part of this great building project. We become the temple of his body and we are likened to living stones in this temple. What a delight, what a joy, what a privilege that we have come to this great cornerstone and we ourselves are being built up. That means in terms of worship. Let's not be like those Pharisees. Just tell your people to be quiet. No, no, no. We're here to worship the living God. We're being built up for this very purpose of worshiping God. That's the very purpose of which we have been brought into this temple. And it means in terms of holy living. We who have come to Christ, who is this perfect, perfect cornerstone. Likewise, we are being built up into a beautiful temple, being made more and more like him. And, and more and more, are the, the, all of the nastiness is being scrubbed away. Mark now has this, this wonderful machine by which he can come and scrub all of your pavement stones and so forth. And they come out looking almost good as new. Well, that's a picture, isn't it, of the reality of us as Christ is scrubbing us up and washing the filth away and making us more perfect and more fit to be a part of his temple in holy living. And then also in our vocations. You know, that's the beautiful thing about this temple. It's a it's a working temple. It's not just there for show. It is there to do the bidding of the living God. Unlike. Unlike those wicked leaders and the way that they had misled this vine. So it did not bring forth fruit for the for the Lord at his appointed season. This is going to be a fruitful vine this time because Christ himself is the vine, this new vine, and we ourselves are being built up to be fruitful branches in it. And in whatever way he has called you, we know if it is a lawful vocation, you have every scope and every opportunity to bring forth fruit to his praise and to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are amazed truly at your patience and long-suffering Lord, were we telling the story, we would not have gotten to the second servant, let alone the third, let alone your own beloved son, before we would have brought judgment upon these wicked tenants. But Heavenly Father, in this we condemn ourselves and recognize, Lord, that in many ways we have in times past acted as those who are in rebellion against our own God, against our own Lord, those who would reject and cast out the prophets those who would not listen to the warnings in the word of God. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. Turn every one of us now to Christ the Rock, that we might bow before him in humility, receive him now as Savior rather than as judge. We know, Lord, the day is coming when he is coming to crush quite justly and rightly so those to powder who remain rebellious against him. And Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would furthermore be built upon this living rock as ourselves being built up as lively stones into this beautiful temple. Lord, we would not at all wish to be like those, those chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes who were unfruitful and unholy and, and ugly as well as wicked. We pray, Lord, rather to be built up in beautiful holiness, bringing forth the fruit that you desire from us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.